Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week, we're talking about the insurrection again. But we're not talking about politics this time. Instead, we're talking about a much older story than the drama surrounding Donald Trump and the current iteration of the Republican Party. You might think of today's political environment as the oxygen that helps anti-government sentiment grow. We're looking at the roots, at white supremacy, the militia movement, and a history of domestic terror that predates any sitting politician. And we're talking about it with two journalists who have studied it extensively. Leah Satilli and Bill Moreland. Leah and Bill joined me on February 16th, just a few days after the former president was acquitted in an impeachment trial over his role in the events leading up to and on January 6th. We were speaking for the latest installment of Crosscut's at-large live virtual series, where we talk about the biggest issues with the journalists that know them best. So, With the acquittal of Donald Trump, it seemed like the first chapter of the insurrection had come to a close. It was a short trial, and part of that was because much of the evidence had already been seen, shared widely on social media and broadcast on mainstream media. The perpetrators were not really that shy about their actions. These were Americans. The vast majority of them were white. Uh, Many of them were armed, and some were bearing symbols of white supremacy. And they were clashing violently with police, espousing violent rhetoric and calling for the reversal of a democratic election in the very seat of our democracy. I mean, it was shocking. The Senate decided to acquit the former president, but there's still more to come. Uh, criminal probes, possible civil litigation, uh, a congressional commission. In some ways, the repercussions of this event on the former president and his party have only just begun. But the reality is, this isn't the first chapter of this story. The forces that brought those Americans to the Capitol have been unfolding for decades. I mean, more than decades. And this was never likely to serve as an epilogue for this story either, even if Donald Trump had been convicted. So, that long history is worth investigating, and that unknown future is something that we need to consider. And that's why I was talking with Leah and Bill. Leah is a freelance journalist who's best known as the host of Bundyville, a podcast that tells the story of the anti-government actions of the Bundy family. She's also the host of the podcast Two Minutes Past Nine, which looks at the legacy of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Bill was a longtime staff writer at the Spokesman Review in Spokane, where he covered the armed standoff at Ruby Ridge in 1992, And he's currently at work on a book about the Aryan nations. He's also Leah's mentor. I think you'll find the conversation enlightening and pretty sobering. As always, you can email us at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. So... I'd like to start this conversation last month, um, and I wonder how you saw the events of January 6th. 
as that mob stormed the Capitol, Leah, what, what was running through your mind? It was a really difficult thing to watch. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I'm sure Bill would probably agree with me. You know, you cover this stuff for a long time and you um, maybe saw some predictability in what was happening there. This was something that people have been talking about for a really, really long time. So they were, in a way, just coming good on the thing they'd always talked about. But I think as a person, it was just still really difficult to watch. Bill, what about you? What did you see? Uh, yes, I agree completely with Leah's observations. Uh, it, it was a storm that was long in the making. I mean, uh, some of us could see it coming clear back in 2016, and it just gathered significant momentum, obviously uh, coming to a head there on the very day that Congress was going to uh, certify the Electoral College vote. And uh, I think there was a lot, of, a lot more pre-planning than anyone currently knows. So I'm uh, very enthused about the forthcoming uh, congressional inquiry, kind of a 911 type investigation that will fully get to the bottom of all, of all this. I don't think we only we only know a smattering of the information behind what happened on that tragic day. So and I'm wondering, you know, I want to stay on this for a little bit because, you know, you both are looking at this with eyes that are um, trained to see the markings of militias, white supremacy. What did you, when you were watching it, were you seeing um, your uh, journalism that you had been doing sort of playing out on the screen? Were there things that you were noticing that you think other Americans weren't noticing? I mean, one thing that I definitely noticed right off the bat was the, you know, heavy presence of QAnon symbology there, um, people wearing Oath Keepers hats. I mean, the Oath Keepers were present at the 2014 standoff down in, in Bundy Ranch in Nevada, um, the 2016 occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Those were things that I saw, but also um, really this sort of parading out of patriotic imagery as anti-patriotic. That's something that, you know, I think a lot of people have, have asked me about before is, you know, these these folks call themselves part of the patriot movement, and yet what they're doing seems very opposite of patriotic. And, and that definitely, I mean, was what we were seeing was this um, wearing of uh, the Trump flags as, as capes and this um, embracing of anti-government uh, as patriotic was definitely something I, I was noticing. As the events unfolded on my television, I immediately uh, sensed the presence of white supremacy and white nationalists. And it was like, here's their show. And Trump Trump is pounding the drum and, and let's go at it. And many of these people uh, ironically claim to support law enforcement and police, but yet they're using flagpoles and, and, and sticks and pipes and fire extinguishers to beat the very police that they, they say they support. Uh, just one of many ironies that I saw. But the presence of white nationalists using this as a vehicle to further their message, to further network with each other, these various groups that were there. And I think the number of groups that were there was just, uh, you know, pretty impressive. And you could see their symbols uh, pretty easily from, you know, three percenters and Oath Keepers to Boogaloo to uh, QAnon to straight mega supporters, people that are just dyed in the wool Trump supporters that aren't necessarily affiliated with any white nationalist groups, but they all sort of came together in this huge melting pot. And it was, you know, it was, it was like almost like one upmanship and like, let's go do this. It was just a fever that seemed to catch on. And it was, it was, it was stunning to see. Hmm. All right. So in order to make more sense of what happened last month, 
I really want to take advantage of all of the work that both of you have done and go back a few decades. You know, Bill, you've said that the modern militia movement was born out of Ruby Ridge, which, as I mentioned, you reported on. A few years later, we saw that militia movement really reach a kind of apex with the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City, which, Leah, you have focused a lot of your work on in the last year. Can we draw a straight line between then and now? And what is, and what is that line? Bill, what about Ruby Ridge? What does Ruby Ridge tell us about what's happening right now? Well, I'd like to back it up even a little farther than that, because before Ruby Ridge in 92, we had the Aryan Nations set up shop here in North Idaho in about 1980. And the Aryan Nations, uh, on an annual basis, would be uh, host an annual congress of different far-right groups, ranging from the Klan to uh, neo-Nazis to Christian identity forces and, and others. And so they sort of became one of the early melting pots that pr promoted some of these anti-government notions. And it's it's changed shape and form and the, the labels have changed and some of the costumes have changed, costumes I say. Uh, but yeah, the, the, then with Ruby Ridge, it was just, uh, that's where the anti-government flavor really kicked up because clearly there were some government excesses at Ruby Ridge in 1992. And, and the far right uh, used that as a reason to sort of advance the anti-government uh, message. And within a year or so of Ruby Ridge, a lot of, of what we now call militia groups around the country, including those in Michigan and, and elsewhere, started forming. And their, their main message was anti-government. We're not going to let the FBI or federal forces come into our neck of the woods for any reason. We're in control. And, and then you add into all that the notion of these uh, constitutional sheriffs who say only the local sheriffs can support the support the law of the land, that the feds have no authority over our vast natural resources, Bureau of Land Management lands and so forth. And it's, it's sort of a we hate the feds attitude. And it just grew from, from Ruby Ridge up until, uh, you know, what we saw then in 1995 at the Oklahoma City bombing where a bomb was planted outside a federal building and, and took, what, 160 some lives. So it's, it's been a growing momentum. And before I, I need to defer to Leah, but one other thing that bears mentioning is that the American public, from my point of view, having studied this since 1980, they don't pay attention unless there's an Oklahoma City, unless there's a riot at the U.S. Capitol, unless there's a Ruby Ridge. In between time, we all go back to sleep and people just don't pay attention to what the heck is going on around them. And we, after 9-11, we're all worried about foreign terrorists, when in fact, in this country, there's a far bigger threat from homegrown domestic terrorists. Hmm. Well, just to add on to that, before we talk to you, Leah, about Oklahoma City, you know, in 1995, you know, Ruby Ridge was, was still a part of the national conversation, perhaps even more so than it was in 92. And then you have the bombing of, of the federal building in Oklahoma City. And... And domestic terrorism is really at a height. I mean, just awareness among Americans. And I wonder, as you talk about this thread, Leah, if you could also speak to us about, you know, what did we see in the government response then? And how does it compare to what we're seeing right now? I think that, um, you know, Oklahoma City is, is, I've spent the last year working on why it's relevant right now. And, um, you know, some of the things that jump to mind when thinking about it is that Timothy McVeigh, the perpetrator of that bombing, was um, very uh, jaded from his time in the military. He was came home, he was very listless, 
didn't quite know what to do with these skills that he would he had acquired over there. And, um, you know, I spoke to somebody that was in um, that was uh, abroad with him during the Iraq war. And he mentioned that he felt like they weren't really conditioned to figure out what to do with those skills when they came home and and where to direct that energy of enemies and 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 where um, corruption was happening and things like that. So McVeigh then took to the gun culture circuit to find um, find new friends and new people in a new community. And he found the militia movement there. So um, he was also really fired up about anti-government conspiracy theories, that there was some sort of uh, swamp, you might say, that needed to be drained in, in D.C. and um, that it would be gun holders and militias that would, you know, um, fix that. So, you know, what we saw on January 6th was really that playing out in, in, in real life was these conspiracy theories, again, coming to a head. Like Bill said, you know, in 95, we saw this horrific bombing that killed 168 people, many children, and the the world forgot about it. And I think that Bill makes a really good point with 9-11. We saw this really, um, I want to say marketing of the term terrorist in America, that a terrorist became a certain thing. And that certain thing was not white, was not Christian, um, when in reality, experts um, in the FBI have been saying that this is our biggest problem, that homegrown terrorism is our biggest problem. But I think it's a lot more difficult for Americans to look inward instead of looking outward at something and being able to villainize an entire group of people. I think the other thing that was interesting in 95, too, was that Timothy McVeigh was very emboldened to do what he did because of the Waco, what happened at the, in Waco, Texas, uh, the Waco standoff. Um, and there started to be this thing that I'm sure that Bill observed at Ruby Ridge, this idea that the government was going to come after people who live differently. And in that case, you know, when that narrative that you see now on Netflix shows and things like that about Waco is that these were just folks that were religious and wanted to live differently. They were also manufacturing firearms illegally. There was a gun element in, in that case that that really fired up a very specific group of people. And McVeigh also went to the Waco standoff to see what was going on there and to sell pro-gun, anti-government bumper stickers to people. So this is all kind of the soup that's been boiling, I think, for a very long time that we saw bubble over this year. You know, one of the things, I think I was reading um, a piece from Jess Walters, who is a colleague of, of Bill's when both of, uh, were covering uh, Ruby Ridge, talking about how there was this, about how th there are two ways to look at Ruby Ridge. And I imagine there are two ways to look at all of these issues. And one is as government overreach and the other is as, you know, this violent, you know, um, militia uh, movement driven by white supremacy and its exposure. And to me, it felt like it's where we're seeing this sort of separation of two realities. And, and it feels like that is, has only metastasized in the last few years. And I wonder if you, um, Leah, in your recent reporting, uh, are, do you see people refer to Ruby Ridge as being something that is a knock against the government? I mean, are, are the people in these militias um, who, who maybe don't identify as white supremacist or, um, or necessarily uh, follow in the steps of Aryan nations, do they, do they still look at these moments as being examples of government excess? 
Absolutely. Um, I think one great example is to look at this flag that is often flown by people who adhere to the Boogaloo movement, which, you know, Mark, we've talked about that before on your podcast, the Boogaloo being this kind of new, young, anti-government movement that is very focused on violence. And they fly a flag that has a bunch of different names written on the stripes of a sort of quasi-American flag. And among those are, you know, Vicki and Sam Weaver, who were part of the Weaver family that was killed during the Ruby Ridge standoff. You've also got people who have been subject to no-knock police warrants, like Breonna Taylor and Duncan Lemp, young man in, in Maryland. And you've got a militia guy from Lavoie Finicum, who was president of the 2016 Malheur National Wildlife Refuge standoff. So this is all to say, these are all thought of as martyrs of government overreach. And that's something that, you know, I, I didn't specifically look for that flag in the Capitol on January 6th, but I have no doubt that it was there being flown as a reminder that this is a long story that the anti-government movement has been telling itself about the people who are, who are their martyrs that they need to remember. Hmm. You know, another thing that you brought up, Leah, that, that I wanted to, to follow up on is the military background of Timothy McVeigh. Randy Weaver also had a military background, right? He was a Green Beret. And what we're seeing right now, as we see the people who are being associated with the insurrection, is that a lot of these people have you know taken sworn oaths to um, to protect and and serve their their fellow citizens or to protect the country in the military and here they are storming the capital and I wondered Bill if this is something that emerged in the 90s or has there always been an element of a military and law enforcement involvement in these groups going back to as you said the Aryan nations and these earlier iterations. I think there's been an involvement, uh, a clear involvement of, of ex-military and in some instances even active military in far-right groups. Uh, there have been several high-profile cases in the last decade where various skinhead-type groups have been involved in some pretty uh, heavy-duty plots. I, I think of one uh, that occurred, oh gosh, eight years ago or so, I believe in Georgia. And the military uh, trains people to when you go in the military, you're not the same person as when you come out of the military. I think those of us who are in military service would, would agree with that. It, it, just essentially, let's face it, the military, at least the U.S. Army, they teach people how to kill people. And there's really no deprogramming when you leave the military. And some of us can handle it, and some people obviously can't handle it. And a lot of people are still reliving. I have, I know uh, some friends of mine and other people my, in my age group that are still fighting the Vietnam War. I mean, they think the wrong side, the you know, the U.S. Uh, should have never given up. And uh, I was noticing that even at the Capitol riot, there were South Vietnamese flags flying there uh, from people who think that, you know, that uh, we caved into the communists and that the South Vietnamese flag should still mean something. So the presence of military folks and ex-military people in these groups is not a surprise, and it needs to be rooted out. Also, the thing that also is somewhat surprising is the number of... Uh, 
of law enforcement. According to the preliminary reporting that I've seen, I think from the New York Times, there were at least, authorities have now, and the Justice Department have identified at least 30 law enforcement officers from throughout the United States who were present in this in this crowd. Now, not all of them necessarily went in the Capitol, but they were there at the rally and they were there, you know, egging people on supposedly. And uh, I mean, that's that's a significant number, including, I might point out, at least six officers from the Seattle Police Department. I mean, should that come as a surprise to the taxpayers of Seattle? And and what is the Seattle Police Department doing about, uh, you know, uh, are they going to allow these sort of people that believe in, are supposed to we pay to uphold the law to, in fact, be involved with breaking the law? Uh, what a contrast. Various serious questions out there. I think that was something, too, that we noticed, you know, um, Bill and I have both reported on protests in Portland over the last four or five years. And one thing that, you know, has it's it's almost become a joke at this point that uh, the Portland police seem to really protect these groups of Proud Boys, white supremacists, these far right groups that come out flying militia flags, wearing racist T-shirts and things like that while unleashing fury on thousands of peaceful protesters there to air, you know, air their grievances about the Trump administration or to march for Black Lives Matter. So in a way, you know, I think that your question, Mark, is truly one of the biggest questions of, of this insurrection is how do we figure this out? How is it that, like Bill said, do we deprogram people when they come home from wars? But why is it that law enforcement is so attractive to people with anti-government ideas and people who are, frankly, conspiracy theorists? Hmm. Well, and, you know, there is a cognitive dissonance when you see people flying the thin blue line flag in line with people who are beating police officers at the Capitol. There is just a cognitive dissonance there. And I don't know if uh, I've ever seen anything like that before. It was, it was, that to me was probably the most shocking thing. I would have, yeah, I just wouldn't have, have guessed that that would happen. So Bill, you mentioned that, you know, would we be, or should we be surprised that we saw um, at least six police officers who were, who were in DC uh, at the time of this uh, event. We don't know what exactly their involvement was, but they were there um, at the rally. It kind of you know, brings about this question, which is just that, why is the Pacific Northwest a place where this is happening? And to really pull on the threads of history a little bit more, you know, why is Washington, Oregon, Idaho, why are these places so attractive to people who have anti-government, white supremacist views? Well, um, I, I guess I give some credit to uh, Richard Butler. When he uh, set up shop in 1980 and he was uh, here until his passing in 2004, he urged people to move to the Northwest, uh, those states you just named. And he, he called it a whites-only homeland. And uh, you know what? There have been a lot of uh, police officers uh, particularly from California, who have moved to North Idaho. I mean, it's it's a significant number. And a lot of these folks uh, like the outdoors. They like fishing and hunting. And they come here for, you know, reasons other than Butler's message of white nationalism. I'm not trying to brand them all in that in that, in that that manner. But it, it's a great place to live, those of us who live here. We like the Pacific Northwest. And it's it's become real attractive. And, um and then when you had the Aryans set up shop as they did, and you know some people viewed them as sort of the circus clowns. They're just a bunch of guys up there burning crosses in you know clan uniforms. But some of their messages actually 
have now worked their way into mainstream. And again, it's one of those things that uh, people, you know, really haven't paid a lot of attention to. I, I'm just looking at some of my old notes in the in the 1980s, for example, when, at one of his many so-called World Congresses that Butler hosted up there, one of his messages were, and these were his words, he said that mongrel hordes from Mexico were invading the United States. And I was thinking, how different is that from, from Donald Trump saying in 2018 that rapists and murderers and criminals were invading the United States from Mexico? It's the same message. I mean, one was from a renowned racist, and another one was from our former president, who was definitely uh, doing uh, winks and nods, I believe, to white nationalists and to white supremacists. So some of these messages that, you know, decades ago were messages of the extreme have now crept into uh, mainstream politics. I think Hillary Clinton in 2016, you know, when she was running for the presidency, she used the term deplorables. And people sort of forgot about that, but she nailed them right on. I mean, some of these people, even in 2016, that were talking about some of these things, and once Trump was in the White House, boom, the small spark blossomed into a big flame, and we saw the results on January 6th. I think one thing, too, that I've observed in, in Oregon, where I live, is that, you know, this goes back to the founding of the state itself, that Oregon was set up as a place where people weren't even allowed to bring their slaves. Um, that was that was it was set up to be an all white state, um, you know, and I know that goes back into the 1800s. But I think that that goes into the systems that have have come to set up this place. I think the other thing, too, is that the Northwest, you know, um, and when I talk about the Northwest over into even Montana, these are are places where the economy has been really set up on extractive industries, so timber, mining, things of that nature. When we saw the Bundys take over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in 2016, that was sort of the heart of some of their grievances was saying, you know, that change away, that taking the money away from their pockets and and thinking about the environment and things like that were sort of one way to get people into the conversation and, and sort of suck them into a funnel that you know, you may be upset about ranching, but let me also tell you about these anti-government conspiracy theories. So a lot of times I think that the, the Northwest has had folks who have a particularly Northwest grievance that then allows them to recruit people into these wider, um, more unprovable conspiracy theories. Hmm. Do you, uh, so Leah, I wanted to just ask you about, you know, the Bundys and the, 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 two, the two actions, the two incidents, the two events that, that you've covered pretty extensively that served as uh, precursors to the Trump administration. And I'm curious, does all this happen if Cliven Bundy doesn't um, make his stand in Nevada? How, how does history play out differently? Or does it not really matter that much? I'm sure Bill will have opinions on this too. We actually, Bill and I actually met while we were covering the uh, trial for the Bundys for their 2014 standoff in, in Las Vegas. So just a quick recap on those events. You know, 2014, Cliven Bundy decides to call in the militias when the federal government comes to collect his cattle, to round up his cattle, because for over 20 years, he has not paid the required grazing fees to graze on public land. That goes off in his favor. The government backs down, he keeps his cattle, the militia movement calls it a huge victory. Two years later, 2016, his his two son, two of his sons, I should say, 
go and take over federal wildlife refuge in Oregon. And they do this sort of to come to the aid of a, a family of ranchers who um, I won't even get into their illegal um, battles, but um, that goes on for 41 days and they are acquitted of all charges with that trial by a jury of their peers. So I'm not sure that you could say directly that because of those two events, but you know, because Cliven Bundy won that battle, I guess he likes to say in, in Bunkerville, Nevada, that the insurrection happened. But I do think that it, it gave um, a bit of permission to the movement to say, hey, we, we pointed literal sniper rifles at government agents and we got away with it. And then we took over a wildlife refuge for 41 days. And one person did die during that, that interaction, but a jury acquitted them. So I think that there has been this permissiveness that's either come from mismanagement of cases by the federal government, like we saw with the 2014 case, and by juries saying, well, you know, the government didn't prove the charges for that case. So I think in both of those, it gave Ammon Bundy, his sons, Cliven Bundy, a bigger megaphone. Um, and and more attention. And now, you know, even today, I was looking at some things earlier of people chatting about anti-government things online. And oftentimes they will say, well, the Bundys did get off, you know, remember that we have gotten this permission before and that we we have won these things before through the legal process. So I think it just helped build a um, more of a status, I think, for those people as leaders, but also building a movement saying, hey, well, look at what those guys did. Why can't we do that? And tapping into that same thing, Leah, is uh, the uh, versus uh, versus the big evil government, the big evil government that's control, controlled by the uh, power elite and the deep state and so forth. And, you know, whether you're Cliven Bundy or Randy Weaver or, uh, you know, the, the small guy, you know the militia is coming to your rescue, and we're we're the true patriots. So, the the big federal government gets a bad rap here many times, and there's that kind of collective, you know, uh, animus that's directed towards the federal government. And particularly, I mean, there are places in this country now where uh, FBI agents don't want to go by themselves. It's, it's going to be two or more agents to, to travel into certain counties because they're just not welcome. They're viewed as enemies, or even though these are obviously. You know, U.S. citizens, uh, uh, but so that's that's the country we, we've come to now. Is where a, a lot of people, particularly in rural areas, they really hate the federal government and they hate the agents of the federal government. And whether it's the IRS or the FBI or the ATF, there's some commonality there. And and these groups use that to recruit new members. So, I'm curious about, you know, one of the. Uh, arguments that the impeachment managers made at the end of their of their case was that if you do not convict former President Trump, this will happen again. And the question that came out of that for me was, does it really matter? I mean, certainly there's a political story here where where Donald Trump is able to run for office again. He's able to wield some political power. He remains a power within his party. But would a conviction of Donald Trump really prevent what has um, happened so far from continuing to evolve and grow? And I'm wondering if um, 
Leo, what you're seeing happen in reaction to the acquittal and even before that to the, uh, to the insurrection is telling you a story about where this is headed and whether or not Trump is really as big a factor as those House impeachment managers might have us believe he is. I think that um, I, I, I heard that statement, too, and I thought it's it would have, you know, if you acquit him, it, it, it's either way this movement is going to continue. I don't think that it's um, quite right to think of the anti-government movement as a cult of personality around Donald Trump. I certainly think, obviously, as we've been talking about, he crystallized things and and um, you know whipped up a fury within those movements. But um, but it doesn't solely rely on his shoulders. I think that if they'd found him guilty, I think that there surely would have been a backlash to that as well. What I'm seeing is a lot of back padding and people saying, yeah, we were right. See, this is just this is just one more reason that what we did on January 6th was a, was a good thing and, w- and was right. You know, again, the Bundys being acquitted, the mistrial. It's 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 just one more chapter of 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 that. So um, I think you asked where it's going to go now. And I, I tend to not like to play the predict- predicting game. Bill has been at this a lot longer than I have. So I often call Bill and say, where is this going to go now? So I actually would be curious what he would say. Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but it's it's uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's somewhat pretty. Uh, a lot of the signs are there many times. And anybody that's paid close attention, I think, can sometimes draw some conclusions. Well, in response to your question, you know, the Senate's decision not to convict Donald Trump uh, is one thing. But on, on another on another plateau, we have 160 prosecutions pending uh, b- brought by the Justice Department. There are 160 individuals who were involved in those deadly events of January 6th. And I, for one, hope that when those cases go to court, that the federal prosecutors throw the book at these guys. They need to make examples out of them. They need to be they need to be dealt with harshly by our criminal justice system to show that, in fact, we are a country of laws and that you can't go and break into the Speaker of the House's office and do the things that were done there and beat on police officers and pinch them in the door and so forth. So there are 160 cases. And, you know, I haven't seen a lot of reporting on this, but I'm also wondering if as the prosecution goes through those cases, uh, certainly at some point there's going to be a federal grand jury that looks into this, looking into the bigger question of was there a conspiracy, you know, at play here? And who were the players? Were people like, you know, I'm not going to name names, but were, were there some significant players involved behind the scenes in the planning and the financing of what happened there? I mean, buses were rented from Michigan that drove to Washington. I mean, there was, and there was a, a significant amount of uh, apparent planning that went into this, uh, just like Charlottesville. Everybody, you know, showed up with a torch at, to Charlottesville, but in, in D.C., people people were there ready to rumble. I mean, they were there. I mean, they were there to disrupt the lawful business of Congress. We ought not forget about that. And I'm putting my money on those federal prosecutors to get to the bottom of that, augmented, I hope, by the work of Congress with a special investigation into what really did happen that day. We'll be back with more after this. Did you know that right now Mount Rainier is talking to us and that with the right tools, we can hear what it's saying? 
Or that the quietest square inch in the world might be in a patch of rainforest, a mere stone's throw from Seattle? Hi, I'm Ted Alvarez, the host of Crosscut Escapes, a new podcast that will help you explore the natural wonders of the Pacific Northwest through sound. We'll ask big questions about what makes our home tick, and we'll visit the region's wildest, most unique places to find answers. With scientists, experts, and the occasional laughing coyote along for the ride, each episode is an adventure for your ears. It's a mountain breeze in the middle of your daily grind, and you'll come away smarter, more refreshed, and more connected to all the magical things happening right now in our backyards. Look for Crosscut Escapes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The next thing I wanted to ask about is really, Bill, you you mentioned um, that we'll see this playing out in the courts in you know in the coming months. Uh, and years, uh, perhaps. Uh, I wonder what both of you think about the government's response outside of what's happening as far as uh, uh, prosecution goes here. You know, President Biden came out with um, a a pretty thought-out plan, um, announced that there would be looking into domestic terrorism more. I mean, it really seems to be more on the um, the FBI's uh, radar now than it has been in the past. What's the what's the the nature of I mean what have you been seeing as far as the government apparatus swinging into place here and um, and I know I asked this before but I'm just kind of curious about how it compares to where the government was at pre 9/11 in regards to these groups uh, Bill wh- what are you seeing they they sure as heck should be doing what you just suggested I mean I was just looking at some numbers and in in 2020 there were 16 incidents in the United States. Uh, in which police and extremists exchanged gunfire. And at least 14 of those incidents involved anti-government extremists or white supremacists. I mean, that's even before January 6th. I mean, what's happening on the far right has been going on for a long time. It started, it really kicked into into gear, I believe, with the election in 2008 of Barack Obama. And, And it is just, it's festered. And it's the networking and with the, advances in the internet and chat rooms and uh, the dark web it's 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 a huge it's a huge problem and uh, government agencies have told us that in you know back in 2009 the Department of Homeland Security and a colleague of mine Daryl Johnson wrote a report saying you know while everybody's worried about a foreign terrorists and jihadists the real problem is domestic terrorism and we've yet to come that was I mean we've yet to come to grips with that now maybe the events of January sixth will change that. I'm hopeful. I, I was. I'm glad that uh, Bill mentioned Daryl Johnson's report because that report was was shelved. It was politicized and shelved, and Daryl was sort of uh, shuffled along out of out of his position. And I've interviewed him quite a bit, and it's really harrowing to hear that this information was presented to. Our government, but it was politicized as, uh, by Republicans as you know anti-American and um, you know terrorists are not here; they are elsewhere. And I think you know the Biden administration would do well to reread that report and potentially consult with Daryl about what he saw then and how we can start working working towards fixing this. I mean, you know, I also wrote about a, a bombing that happened in Panaca, Nevada, in 2016. And that was 
there were never any charges brought on that bombing. And there was so much evidence about that that was a bomb that was intended for a federal building. It was instead placed at a person's house. And nothing has come out about that. None of my freedom of information requests have ever been answered on that. So, so this is this is both big and small. It's local and it's it's national. And I think that um, you know, there's a lot of looking backward we need to do to answer this moment right now. So, Leah, I know you said that you you don't want to uh, uh, play the prediction game, and I appreciate that. But I do wonder, and this is going to be my last question for both of you before we move on to the reader questions. But I'm I'm wondering what you are going to be keeping your eye on. What are you looking out for? What storylines are you following coming out of the insurrection and going into the future? Um, Bill, what about you? What, what have you got your, your eye on right now? Well, I, I think the big, the big evolving thing is this whole QAnon in the conspiracy world. And QAnon is not the start of the conspiracy world. I mean, it, the whole conspiracy world and the extremist world have been commingled for years and years. And it's, in fact, one of the many uh, myths that, uh, you know, that Richard Butler and the Aryan Nations used to promote back in the 80s and 90s. They, of course, their, their biggest conspiracy was they didn't believe that six million Jews died in the Holocaust. And they used that to attract, uh, you know, followers. And there's still elements out there who are Holocaust deniers that, uh, you know, still peddle that ridiculous message. And, and then we've, you know, gotten into the whole realm now of QAnon that factors in all these wild ideas. And back in 2011, 10 years ago, I spent three uh, actually very uncomfortable days in, uh, in Santa Barbara, California at a conspiracy conference where all these conspiracy buffs from throughout the country got together and sort of traded stories. I mean, it's some of the stuff, you know, ranging from, you know, the 9-11 attacks were an inside job, that the Mossad was somehow involved that uh, there were shadow governments and secret societies and the Illuminati and the global elites. And then that sort of spins into more anti-Semitism where all these people got together and there were several hundred people there who paid, you know, a pretty sizable attendance fee to come together to swap these stories. And so now you spin the tail ahead to, uh, you know, about four years ago when QAnon started, you know, taking off and all these wild ideas are peddled you know, on the internet, you know, that somehow uh, Jewish forces are responsible for lasers that started the California wildfires. I mean, some of the stuff is, I mean, it's just straight, I mean, bizarre. I mean, and it's unfounded, but yet it attracts a following. And from that following, some of these people then get spun off into these other groups that we've previously talked about, these militia groups, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, they're coming to get my guns. You know, FEMA's across the board, you know, these uh, FEMA's setting up uh, detention camps. I mean, the whole web of conspiracy stuff out there is just, I mean, it's it's a doctoral study, you know, in the making. Hmm. I'm really interested in how religious leaders play into this um, whole thing. I mean, we saw with the pandemic and um, mask regulations reopening that a lot of conspiracy theories about the government's role in the pandemic were was coming from the pulpit, um, even in the Northwest. So that's something, you know, I'm eternally interested in, in um, people's religious views and, and what people choose to believe um, during their life. 
And so that's that's one thing I'm interested in. I'm also really interested in how young people are feeling um, very much like the world is on the brink, that they've grown up on um, uh, in the world that, you know, is they're aware is rapidly warming and climate change is a huge deal. And they've only known Donald Trump and Barack Obama to be president. And it feels very um, on the brink. So I think that that's something that we've seen um, within the Boogaloo movement, this real kind of energy around um, increased violence. And I think a lot of that has to do with it being predominantly young men um, that are in that movement. So those are, those are things I'm kind of keeping an eye on. Hmm. Um, so uh, we've got a question from a reader. We're going to move into the reader questions now. And we've got a question from a reader that I think touches on that, Leah, and and some, some, some other things that I wanted to talk about. So uh, thank you, Danielle Garb-Reeser, for this question. How do you see the current status of some Washington state legislators and others to advocate for the Liberty State Movement? So this is a piece of legislation that has been introduced by now former state representative Matt Shea and to cordon off Eastern Washington as a separate state. Leah, you have written about Matt Shea, who I think that this viewer is talking about. And I'm curious about this, but then also, you know, where are we seeing this in local politics? Is it on the rise or is there a, a process of, of kind of uh, filtering out these voices? Well, Matt, yeah, Matt Shea is somebody I've written a lot about. And, um, you know, if uh, the state of liberty becomes a thing, I think, Bill, you're going to live in the capital of it, right? Like, he, that's that was always the idea, was that you separate eastern Washington and um, turn it into its own state with North Idaho. And I've even heard western Montana get pulled into that. Um, I do think that there was a lot of energy around that idea because of Matt Shea. He is not in office anymore. However, and I actually wasn't thinking of him when I was just talking about the religiosity behind some of these views, but he's gone on to now lead, um, a, a, he's an evangelical preacher at a church in Spokane Valley. A large part of that church is to set up services outside of Planned Parenthood in Spokane. And, and it's, it's a very anti-abortion um, church. Um, if you, you know, anybody can watch what Matt Shea says on Facebook and it is, you know, very anti-government. So I don't know that there is a sustained energy around that idea. We've seen, you know, since forever, it seems like the state of Jefferson has been a thing in Southern Oregon where people with similar ideas want to break away part of the state. It's, it's a, it would be quite a dramatic act for that to actually happen. Bill, I don't know. Do you see State of Liberty flags and things like that around town anymore? Uh, occasionally. You know, I can't help when I think about that and hear about that, the same thing that Richard Butler was talking about, a whites-only homeland. Right. That's really, let's, let's just call it what it is. That's what Matt Chase is talking about. He wants a whites-only homeland, that, or is it predominantly white, that's a Christian theocracy. You know, to, to heck with the other religions where, you know, according to him and his followers, you know, we should be a country only for white Christians and there's no place for anybody else. And and from that is a really a rigid brand of hatred. And it re, it's responsible for things like, uh, you know, Nazi swastikas on the synagogue here a, a week or so ago. It's responsible for leafleting. It's responsible for just uh, just branches and branches of, of hatred and racism. And uh, I'm not blaming all that on Matt Shea. I'm saying it's the cesspool that this stuff comes from. And so the only homeland and the 51st state are just, 
I hope they never happen in my lifetime. And it's it's definitely like I think Bill's right. It's definitely an idea. Um, you know, there's a there's a house in my neighborhood that for the last few years was flying a thin blue line flag and a Trump flag. And then they've taken down the Trump flag and put up a flag with, you know, the Christian fish um, filled with an American flag in the middle and says something about it being a Christian nation. And I think that that's at the heart of the state of liberty is this idea of a white Christian homeland. And it doesn't need to necessarily be dressed up as liberty or, or Americanism a la Matt Shea, but it is this idea of, um, you know, that we see in other ways and in other incarnations too. So, so yeah. Hmm. All right, we've got another one from Aline Flower here. She says, would you say that white nationalism is empirically on the rise in this country or simply more emboldened? Are we simply seeing it more starkly as people of color gain meaningful voices and political power and are approaching majority status in our country? I would opt for the latter part of that uh, question. And uh, I think some people are having uh, difficulty coming, white people are having difficulty coming to grips with the fact that in, in just a few years, uh, white people are gonna be the minority in this country. And uh, they, they use that to, to race to these different racist organizations. And, um, but the, the, the ebb and flow of, 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 ac of activity in, uh, in white supremacy groups, you know, ebbs and flows. And there've been, you know, over the last, you know, 50 years, uh, uh, you know, there was a real uh, big jump in it after the 2008 election. So it, it's sort of one of those numbers that's pretty elusive. I mean, for example, I mean, some states and some police departments don't even require the reporting of hate crimes. So it's difficult really to track the world of hate and racist groups. And it's gotten better since uh, the federal government formed Joint Terrorism Task Force. And we have FBI, you know, agents across the country now who track domestic terrorism issues. Uh, but we're still not where we should be. It's really a difficult, I think, guessing game to figure out how many people of the white nationalist persuasion are really out there. I don't know that there are any really good ways to come to grips with that. And is the number growing or is it decreasing or is it about the same? Yeah, I think it's, it's I'm with Bill, it's, it's a more emboldened thing right now. You know, somebody like David Duke has been around forever talking about these ideas, but not um, seeing a huge mass of people, you know, sign up and, and, and do his bidding. But I think now we're just at a point in society where we're, we're, we're looking at systems, we're looking at how systems are racist. And so those systems have always been there. It's just more that society, I think, is reckoning with those things. Um, so, so I don't think that, that there's a big change so much as that um, awareness of what white supremacy looks like and how it manifests in, in real life, that it is very rarely a bunch of people with torches and hoods and burning crosses. And it's more often the systems that continually marginalize people. Just a footnote to all that. You know, when you're looking at at the people, obviously there were 70 million people that voted for Donald Trump. Certainly they're not all racist. Some of them are just died in the world Republicans who, who likes what he stood for. I'm not implying that they all were, but within that 70 million, clearly there are a good number of them who subscribe to different racist ideologies, anti-Semitic ideologies. And, and another figure, just to give a gauge of this, you know, Alex Jones, who promotes, who's on a radio talk show, who promotes a lot of these far out conspiracy theories, uh, you know, in February of last year, his program reached 3.3 million people. I mean, that out of a country of 350 million, 
that's a significant number of people that that spend some time listening to the skewed hate messages of Alex Jones. Um, and again, I think that's indicative. I think it's more pervasive than a lot of us probably realize in terms of people that, that are buying into some of this. Now, does that mean that they're going to go out and burn a cross on their neighbor's lawn? Probably not. But do they believe some of these government conspiracy theories, that there's a deep state out there or that the election was somehow rigged or, I mean, you pick the theory on any given day. I mean, there's a whole long list of them, but uh, it's, uh, it, it's it, those of us who pay close attention to this, it's, it's fairly frightening. Hmm. All right. I've got a, another question or a question here from Richard Cohen who asks, uh, do you anticipate increasing levels of violence from the far right? And by that, I mean violence of an even greater scale and impact, bombings, shootings, things like that. Uh, I know, again, this is asking, uh, asking you to predict, but, um, but what is the, I mean, I mean, are these things that are being talked about in the channels that you're um, seeing, uh, Leah? What's the likelihood? Yeah, I think it's it's one big fear, I think, that um, that lots of folks have that I've interviewed is this idea of of lone wolves. You know, that this I know that's a very frustrating term um, and it, it is for a lot of reasons. You know, looking at Timothy McVeigh, he's oftentimes characterized as a lone wolf who, you know, went and bombed a building and that was that and it ended with him. Um, Bill and I have talked extensively on one of my podcasts. You can hear us talking about whether or not there was a vast network of people that that allowed um, and helped him along to um, committing that bombing. So I think um, this is to say, you know, I think there's always a big fear of that kind of, of thing, that there's someone who kind of goes off on their own and does something um, uh, really violent that can't really be predicted. They're not talking about it on channels, on the internet and things like that. But I don't think that we can only look to those um, kind of uh, oddball types, that, that there's plenty of simmerings online. You know, uh, Facebook and things like that have taken down a lot of these channels that I would often look at. Um, but there's still, you know, people talking about committing violence on, on, on large and small scales. You know, when you see a bunch of people showing up in Olympia or in Portland or in Salem or any state capital, battled up and ready for war like that that's a thing to be concerned about um bringing guns to state capitals i think that's a form of violence is threatening people um so i think that that's all something to be worried about i don't know bill what do you think um yeah i agree i you know predicting predicting the next event uh, uh traditionally uh, some of these events uh, the springtime is is, is brought out some of these worst events, uh, April, you know, the birthday of Hitler, uh, have, have always been times of heightened alert by federal authorities that watch this stuff. Uh, but you know, who knows what's going to happen next? I mean, Leah and I were both here in Spokane when a guy decided to plant a backpack bomb on the mountain Luther King parade, uh, back in 2010, I believe it was. Uh, so, you know, the predictability is, is just, is difficult, but we have to hope that law enforcement and, and analysts uh, in the private sector are paying close attention to what's going on in these chat rooms. It's a huge 24-hour-a-day task, and uh, in, in tracking down who these individuals are, you know, including QAnon. I want to know who's QAnon. Who is that person out there? Uh, does the NSA know? I mean, does somebody can somebody really tell us who QAnon or who's behind all this these strange posts? We have a lot of people who are asking 
about what they can do. So Luis Pietrofessa asks, what can those of us who are awake and alarmed at this trend do to discourage this growing hatred toward the government and uh, racist ideology? So what, what can be done? Bill, you've been covering this for so, so long. What, what have you seen Sim- that works? Simple answer. Join your local human rights group. When an event happens in your community, get that group to speak loudly against what you just saw and let the world know that there are more people of goodwill than there are people of bad will that want to promote hate. Do something. Join a human rights group, a, a civil rights group in your own community or you know, on a local level and be ready to react when some of these crimes occur. Hmm. Leah? I think to me, it's, it's um, you know, make yourself uncomfortable when you hear misogyny and racism. There are many, many ways that those things um, get tossed around in casual conversation or online, um, you know, over dinner tables and things like that. And I think it's really difficult to to say that something is hateful. And I think just on a person to person level, having those conversations with your loved ones, friends, family, coworkers, um, and just being able to say, hey, what, what you're saying is not okay. Um, stopping it right there might allow um, it to, you know, prevent it from going further. Hmm. All right. Well, Leah, Bill, thank you both so much for talking with us today. Your work, it really brings clarity at a very difficult time. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Bill and Leah for the chat. And thanks also to the folks in the audience for their questions. Lots of good ones this week. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, including the CrossCut Festival, which is coming in May, go to crosscut.com slash events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Knut Berger provided research assistance, and Ann Krisnovich oversaw audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do so at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.